This is Tom Lee, Editor-in-Chief of NEJAM Catalyst, and we're talking today about how to use PROMS with one of the key figures in the development of patient-centered outcomes measurement. Dave Sella, PhD, the Director of the Center for Patient-Centered Outcomes at Northwestern Medicine. He's a true pioneer in the field of outcome science. But we asked to talk with him today not to summarize his work or that of others who believe in the importance of PROMS, but instead to talk about one of the most important barriers to their use, uncertainty by clinicians of how to actually use them. In particular, the question of what's a meaningful difference in these measures? Dave, first let me say that I'm in that group who believes in the importance of PROMS, but also in that group that's uncertain of how to use them. I'm not alone, am I? Well, first, uh, Tom, thank you for inviting me to this conversation. No, you're not you're not alone at all. I get questions on a regular basis from clinicians who are interested and sort of believe in the use of PROMS in their practice, but have questions about what to use, how to use them, and how to interpret them. So it's not just unfamiliarity with how the measures are developed or what the measures are, is uncertainty of how to use them with individual patients. That's right. Uh, you know, we do a lot of work to validate these questionnaires to demonstrate that they are reliable, as in reproducible, produce stable measures that are sensitive to change over time. Uh, and then we publish that information and clinicians still are more or less often at a loss as to how to really incorporate that into their day-to-day -day practice. Well, this must be frustrating because you're doing good work and you want it to be used, but there are barriers that keep it from happening. So you recently polled some experts on PROMS on this issue. Tell us what you learned. I learned that patient-reported outcome measures are not very different at all from a whole range of clinical measures that people use all the time in practice, such as weight or blood chemistry values or other things. I did a poll of, of uh, some 43 colleagues of mine um, and asked them what clinical measures they use, how do they use them, what do they, what's the basis that they use for determining whether they have a clinically meaningful score or change. And I learned, I learned a lot of interesting things in doing that. For example, I learned that there is no single number or no single value that is routinely used across all patients with any of a range of clinical measures. You know, so for example, one person losing 5% of their weight could be clinically very important if they have cancer, but another person who may be obese, losing 5% of their weight is quite a good thing. So something like weight loss or weight gain or uh, hemoglobin level, et cetera, are not, don't have universal standard numbers that are clinically meaningful. And yet this is expected of patient-reported outcome measures for reasons I don't fully understand. You know, one comment by Arnie Milstein in NEGM Catalyst from our early years uh, was that measures only get better when you use them. And my take and listening to you, the comments you just made are that only by using them will we start to understand the nuances of when a change in one direction or another is a good thing or a bad thing. 
That's exactly right, Tom. I, I read um, the transcript of that podcast and Arnie was referring, of course, to quality measures. And in particular, he used an example of uh, the hospital death rate being uh, disrupted or perturbed by the fact that at the time, uh, some hospitals were doing hospice care inpatient and so that inflated their death rate. So that hospital death rate measure needed to be nuanced and improved upon uh, with time and with use uh, and risk adjustment, et cetera. Very similarly, when we're talking about patient reported outcomes, I would advocate that the best way to use them is to get familiar with a set of questions that is meaningful to your practice and learn over time how they work best with different patients. They really are, I think, best thought of as an entry point for a conversation with patients, not as a definitive yes, no, uh, need for intervention. Now, most doctors like me don't really know how the other tests we use are performed, like BUN or creatinine, uh, but we get used to using them. Uh, how come we seem to hold PROMS to a higher standard? That's a real good question. I, I wish I knew the answer. I have a guess, um, and my guess is that it's because Problems are by their nature subjective, meaning um, they are the answer that a patient gives depends upon a lot of factors that come from that patient. That's one, that's one sort of barrier to uh, people embracing their use. It's also the case that with problems, you're not really certain that you're measuring something that's important to that person's treatment as opposed to important to that person's life. So they do demand a conversation that happens after you ask the questions. So what is the answer for overcoming this issue? Well, I think that clinicians by and large currently believe, many of them, not all, but many of them believe that they already get this information. And because they meet their patients, they have a consultation visit, and they hear about symptoms and they hear about function and they ask questions. So that many are not sure they really need these questionnaires. But if you look at the literature, you will see that very much is missed by that approach to practice. And sometimes that's because we don't ask about certain things. Sometimes that's because patients are reluctant to tell you about something in a conversation. But if you ask them in a, in a test in a format where they're actually being asked specifically on a questionnaire, they're going to be more likely to report. And I think if you look at that information, look at that literature, it can be persuasive and show you that if you ask people in a formal way, systematically, they will report more problems than you're going to get in a typical daily practice. And I would hope that that would be an incentive to proceed with some kind of standard problem. Another thing is that we used to advocate for long tests because of the need to have a completely valid assessment. Well, now we find ways to create shorter measures that are much more focused. And so whereas it might've been 20, 30 years ago, you'd have to spend, a patient would have to spend 15 minutes completing a questionnaire, that can be brought down to two or three. Well, one question that I hadn't anticipated asking you, but crosses my mind now is, uh, what are you thinking about AI, chat GPT, and where it fits in this, in this area? 
it occurs to me that you know chat gpt may be better at uh absorbing the information when we ask about proms more reliable more patient and even more thoughtful but my guess is that you've been thinking about this much more than i have well i'm starting to think about it i don't know if i thought about it enough i'm very intrigued by ai and chat gpt i mean it's these things are are very promising, I think, to be able to incorporate the patient's perspective in with all of the other clinical information that we have in a record, including, uh, you know, learning health system approach, where you're also able to compare to patients with similar diagnosis receiving similar treatments. Well, I am sure that the healthcare system and the type of medicine that gets practiced for my daughter, uh, who's uh mid-30s cardiologist is going to be so much better uh, than it is today. And part of it will be uh, the wiring that you've created in the system with your work, Dave. So thank you for your work in the past. And I think that your thoughtfulness about the barriers to use of PROMS thus far is really quite useful. And I am confident that you're going to contribute much more as we really get into how we as human beings and we as uh, you know, clinicians interacting with our infrastructure, including AI and ChatGPT, get better at using them. So thanks so much for the past and the present and the future. And I hope that we'll get a chance to check in with you from time to time. Anytime. I'm happy to talk with you, Tom. Thank you so much.